If you want to turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 15, we find lots of reasons for parties, don't we? Um, Birthday parties, Uh, my wife and I were just down with the rest of our family down to celebrate my next to youngest grandchild's birthday down in Virginia a couple weeks ago. And, oh, that's lots of fun. Uh, this summer we had a couple other grandchildren's birthdays, and, you know, we, we eat lots of good food and have a fun watching them open their gifts. Um, anniversaries, we, we do anniversary parties. Graduation, somebody makes it whole way through 12, 13 years of school, that's a big accomplishment, uh, or four years of college, and so we throw graduation parties. We do them New Year's Eve, right? Um, Last day of the year. I I don't know why, but we do New Year's Eve's party. Uh, Super Bowl parties. Last year we had a a Super Bowl party at our house. Young adults came out too. And a lot of fun watching the football game. Um, I think there was one lone New England Patriot fan there. They only made it for about 10 minutes and they left something like that. It was a lot of fun. A lot of reasons for, for parties. But can you imagine... Finding someone that you loved that was lost and a reunion, the kind of party that would take place after you are reunited. Back in 1987, a little girl was born in Harlem Hospital. Her, da- her dad's name was Carl. Her mom's day- name was Joy. And she had some complications when she was born, and so they kept her in the hospital for an extended time. Um, She was in there one week and then another week and then a little more. And then one morning the nurses came in and she was gone. They looked and looked and looked. They, They reviewed video footage that they had in the hospital. And they saw a woman that nobody seemed to know. She was dressed up like a nurse. And different people had seen her over weeks before that. But nobody knew who she was or where she had gotten to. The investigation unfolded in the weeks and the months ahead. Nothing turned up. And as you can imagine, mom and dad were absolutely devastated. Months went by, and then years went by, and eventually they realized they were never going to see her again. Meanwhile, about an hour and a quarter away from them in Connecticut, there was a single mom who was raising her daughter. And when the daughter was 16 years old, she got pregnant. And when she went for help with uh, prenatal care, they required a birth certificate of her. And so she went to her mom and asked for that. And mom gave it to her. She took it to the place. And they said, this is not a birth certificate. She took it back to her mom and questioned her. And her mom finally confessed. She said, well, she said, honey, I have to admit, you're not my biological daughter. You were given to me by a woman who was a drug addict. And she asked me to raise you. And then she died shortly after something stuck in the back of this young woman's head and she never really bought the story she had her uh, own child she had a daughter grew up this young lady nicknamed Nettie she was in her early 20s excuse me she was on the internet one day this was back in late 2010 And she was on a site called the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. And lo and behold, she came across a picture of a little girl, a newborn girl, that looked strikingly like her own daughter did when she was born. And many people had told her how much her daughter looked like her. So she contacted the center. She found out the name of the parents of this child that was missing. 
They made connections. DNA tests were done. Sure enough, it turns out Nettie was actually Carlina White, daughter of Carl and Joy White. Can you imagine the reunion when for the first time mom and dad got to see their little girl they hadn't seen since she was 19 days old and she's now 23? What a party. What a party. But there's no party quite like it when somebody comes to Jesus. There's no party quite like the one that's thrown in heaven for someone when they come to Jesus. We're going to talk about that this morning. And if you're here and apart from Christ this morning, you're not a follower of Jesus, I just want you to know that Jesus wants to talk to you today. He has an appointment he wants to make with you. He wants to talk to you about how much you mean to him. Luke chapter 15, we're starting at verse 5. We're in three weeks and looking at these three parables of lost things that Jesus told. And the backdrop of the story is the reason he told these parables was because the Pharisees and the teachers of the law didn't really like all the lost things that Jesus liked. They didn't like lost people that didn't measure up to their kind of, well, to their bar. And so I want to read these verses. We started reading about the lost sheep last week, and I deliberately stopped at verse 4 so that we could add the kind of the response of the shepherd once he finds a sheep to the response of the woman in our story today when she finds her coin. So we're talking last week about a search party being sent out for lost things. Today we're talking about a birthday party. Next week we'll look at the parable of what's often called the parable of the prodigal son and talk about the offended party. Verse 5, and when he, meaning the shepherd, had found it, that is the one of the hundred sheep that was missing, he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. When he arrives, he will call together his friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, because I have found my lost sheep. In the same way, there is more joy in heaven over the one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. Or, suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Won't she light a lamp, sweep the entire house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she will call in her friends and neighbors and say, Rejoice with me, because I have found my lost coin. In the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels when even one sinner repents. Father God, we we meet with you this morning because we love you and because you're worthy of all of our worship. The maker of heaven and earth, the one who cast the galaxies and the skies long before any human ever walked this planet. The one who set out a plan for all the universe and directs its every move. The one who oversees at least one inhabited planet a seven and a half billion people and knows the name of every person on it and all that they do and all that they plan to do and all that they regret. The one who guides and directs all of our movements and our thoughts. The the one who sees us in the best of our days and in the worst of our days and the one who loves us despite better or worse. The one who has so loved the world that you sent an ambassador to us in your son to give himself for us. 
This morning I pray for just a, a mind to see in even greater measure the magnitude of your love and your delight over us. No doubt there are some here this morning who are apart from you and who think maybe one of these days they'll get around to turning to Christ, just not there yet. It may be that they don't think that you really care that much about them meaning that you will only like them if they do the right thing all the time and they're not ready to do that. Or meaning that they um, really think that you're kind of a God that kind of constantly frowns at them because they can never quite get it right. I pray that you would paint a different picture for them this morning, one that portrays you in all your magnificence and your glory and your holiness, but also paints you in a way, uh, in a picture of a loving Father who delights in his children. I pray for believers that might be here this morning who are going through a season of doubt in their minds. Um, Perhaps they're going through a season where they just feel like they're very distant from you. I pray that this morning that you would paint a new picture over them of great delight and joy that you have in them. Not because of your performance, not because of your excellence, not because you've achieved this or become that simply because you are um, their father they're your son they're your daughter and so would you just instill in us today something new and glorious about yourself and your relationship with us and love for us in Jesus name amen what is it that drives any search you're bothering to look for something what why are you bothering to look for it well we look for things that matter to us right we look for things that are of value to us so if the car keys are missing we spend a lot of time looking for the car keys right it's not that we value the little bits of metal it's that we value the independence that it provides for us and so we can't find our car keys we're stuck at home we can't go away we can't get to work we can't get to the party we can't get to this can't get to that uh, a child wanders off in the mall, and we spend a lot of time looking for it. We maybe get security involved. Why? Because the child matters to us. A pet wanders off, and we go looking for it. Why? I have no idea. <laughs> I'm pet-free at this stage in life and loving it. But you spend a lot of time looking for your lost uh, dog, your lost cat. You, I, don't, I have no idea why they do that, but... Your lost rabbit. Why? Because this animal is precious to you. It's of great value to it. Gives gives you some uh, times of great comfort in your life. You you lose money and you spend a lot of time looking for it. Why? Because it matters to you. I remember a year my dad gave some money to each of us kids. And I put it, it was in a little envelope. And I put it in a drawer somewhere. I have no idea where. And uh, it wasn't like I needed it at the moment. Well, uh, uh, six months later, I went, I, I thought, oh, that's right. I wonder where that money is where, that dad gave me. And I looked at the usual place, couldn't find it. I turned the house upside down. I think it was like, might have been 50, might have even been $100. Couldn't find it. But I literally turned that, well, did not literally turned the house upside down. I'm not that strong. Uh, but I looked everywhere I could possibly imagine, and I even looked at the places that I wouldn't have thought it would be. Why? Because it matters. We go searching for things that are of value to us. 
Now remember, the backdrop of this story is that Jesus is speaking to Pharisees and teachers of the law who didn't think the call girl that approached him in Luke 7 was valuable, didn't think that the tax collectors that he hung out with, like Zacchaeus, were valuable. They thought Jesus should keep his distance from people like that because they didn't really measure up to their moral standards. Who would have been valuable to the Pharisees? Well, somebody who was a Jew, right off the bat, if you're not a Jew, you wouldn't measure up. Somebody probably who was of a particular tribe of the Jews. If you read Paul in Philippians chapter 3, you find out that certain tribes apparently in Judaism um, gave you greater prestige than other tribes did. So Paul says, I was the tribe of Benjamin, which put me up here. You also had to measure up not just ethnically, but morally. And clearly the call girl in Luke 7 didn't measure up. Nor did the tax collector. Tax collectors were traitors to their own people, and they were thieves. They robbed their own people blind as they served Rome's purposes and their own pocketbook's purposes. Who's valuable to us? Who is it that matters so much to us that we would bother searching for them? Uh, we went to see the, um, uh, the Broadway play Titanic last week at uh, Lexter Bible College, uh, cooperative between Servant Stage Productions and LBC. What a great, great... Has any, any of you seen that? I saw a couple of you uh, were going to go. Uh, that was just absolutely phenomenal. And uh, I love the little subplot in the musical. I, I did some research, and I don't think this has actually, actually happened. Um, there were some passengers on the Titanic by the last name of Bean, but in the musical they have different first names, and I, I think they just uh, used it as a subplot for fun. But anyway, you have this, this couple from Midwestern United States. The husband owns a hardware store, and he's not wealthy, but he's modestly secure. But his wife has grand visions of being somebody, of, of being important, and of seeing places and things. And so they book passage on the Titanic in the second-class cabins. But she so desperately wants to be a first-class passenger. And so in the production, you see her kind of gazing longingly up at, the, up at the upper deck and wanting to be up there. And then as the play unfolds, you see her slipping in among the passengers of the first, uh, first class passage and, and dancing with the likes of the Guggenheims and the Astors and how wonderful it is. She told her husband, I have, I have greater aspirations than you do. And she wanted to be like those first-class people, and she wanted to, she wanted to know them, not because, um, because they were of value to her, but because they could do something for her. Or maybe I should say they were valuable to her simply because they could do things for her. What is it that makes people valuable to you? My guess is that if we scratch down deep enough the people that we work with and the friends that we have and the acquaintances we have, we would find there's something they do for us that makes them appealing. It may be that we're shy and they're very outspoken, and so we like the, the complementarity of that. Maybe the reverse, that we kind of talk a lot and, and we need somebody that's more shy and retiring who will listen to us talk. It might be that some people, uh, some person is very wealthy and we'd love to get close to them and become friends with them because maybe they give us some of their money or, or maybe refer somebody to uh, uh, us to somebody that could give us some money. People, we like people because of what they can 
do for us. But you think about who God likes. This was the whole point. Jesus was trying to explain to the Pharisees, you have the wrong idea about how you decide who you're going to like, how you decide who you want to spend time with, how you decide who matters, who is of value. And so he spells out these wonderful pictures of a lost sheep and a lost coin and a lost son to portray a, a, a God who sent him and saying, look, you, you, I don't care whether you are a Pharisee or, or you are a call girl or you are a, a person who's demonized, you matter to God. Now, the problem with us when we think about God is we, we're going to explore this more next week. It's, it's very easy for us to transfer how we think about people to how God must think about us. It's very easy for us to transfer how other people think about us to how God must think about us. After all, certainly he values us the same way we might value other people. And conversely, when we don't value other people by virtue of what they do to us, what they've said about us, either to us or behind our back, then we think that God's going to kind of, that God's love for us and his affection for us and his seeing us as valuable people really ebbs and flows based on what we do for him and how we perform. And Jesus so desperately wanted to convey to the Pharisees, it's not like that, and you should thank God that he's not like that. That he actually does love with an everlasting love. And you value to, listen, I don't care how successful you are. I don't care how moral you are, how spiritual you are. I don't care how well you know your Bible or don't. I don't care how how effective of a prayer you are or are not. God loves you neither more nor less than he does somebody who is your counterpart successfully. Why? Because God's affection for you is based on two things. One, you are his creation, his handiwork. He made you. And two, not just that he made you, but he made you and stamped you with his image. Every person in here, whether you are a child of God or not, whether you are a follower of Jesus or not, every person in here bears the image of God, and hence you are of eminent value to God. Just with that. That means that the Pharisee bears the image of God. That means that the call girl bears the image of God. That means that the, that the tax collector bears the image of God. And anybody that you can think of that you like or dislike, the same is true for them. The most upstanding citizen in your community bears the image of God. And so does the man or the woman on death row. So does the pedophile. So does the thief. So does the alcoholic. So does the drug addict. So does the woman who has been married five times and the man she's now with is not her husband. All matter to God because he made them and they bear his image. What drives a search? What we're looking for is a value. The second thing that drives that search is need. I love this story of the shepherd because I think there's some kind of special relationship that shepherds tend to have 
with their sheep. A good book I commend to you. It's uh, 50 years old by now. Uh, It's entitled, A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23. Any of you have read that? Um, It's written by Philip Keller, who grew up as a missionary kid in East Africa and lived his life around herdsmen and shepherds. And then he moved to, I think it was Arizona, as an adult, and uh, was a shepherd for eight years. He owned a flock of sheep. He was a a sheep rancher. And it's a phenomenal book just full of insights of both shepherd and sheep. And he makes this comment. I I think this is... um, this is intriguing, not just as we talk about a lost sheep, i.e. a four-legged woolly thing, but as we talk about sheep that Jesus speaks of us as being. He writes in this book, he says, sheep do not just take care of themselves. They require more than any other livestock, endless attention and meticulous care. That means that as a, ch- as a child of God, that Jesus is always on duty with us because we need endless care, meticulous care. But the shepherd went out looking for the sheep because the sheep needed him. And the longer he would wait to look for the sheep, the more likely the sheep's going to get injured, permanently lost, or eaten. And so he goes out to look for the sheep and lets the 999 back in the fold or in the wilderness, as he says. The woman is looking for a coin. Again, this coin is of need. It's not like the coin had the need, but she has the need of the coin. And scholars have speculated this might have been all the money the woman had for her entire life, that it might have meant the difference between eating that night or not eating that night It might have meant the difference between paying the rent that month, not paying the rent that month. It might have meant the difference of whether or not she could get to work having money to pay the bus fare or not be able to get to work. In fact, it's interesting. We see little pieces of how important it is to her in the text. It says she lights a lamp. In other words, she's going to be able to go to dark places now and see. Uh, She's going to be able to look under the bed. She sweeps her house. I don't know if you hate to clean as much as I do, but that in and of itself tells me she's desperate. I mean, if you're going to clean the house, you're really desperate to find something and says that she searches carefully. Why? If I don't find this money, bad things could happen. And then this picture that is behind all of these other parables of God And it's not as if God has some need of us, but he knows that we have need of him. Really, the the picture that Jesus is painting in these three parables is a picture of a father who sent him on a rescue mission. That's what he's doing. He's portraying his father as a shepherd, as a woman with a lost coin, And as a heavenly father whose son has departed to live a life of rebellion. He's he's directing the attention back to his father for these kind of arrogant, pompous religious people. And saying, my father has a totally different viewpoint on people than you do. And by extension, he is directing their attention to him. Because he is saying, my father has sent me for you. 
your lostness matters that much to him that he sent me here for you. And it maybe didn't sink into them in a profound way on this day, but surely in a couple years when they looked back and they saw him on the cross, they could say, oh, now we get it. Now we see the magnitude of his love. That God was searching for us all along. Now the Pharisees didn't think they were lost. They didn't think they needed searched for. But they so desperately did. Let me just take you to a verse in Ezekiel chapter 34, verse 11. You don't need to look it up. We'll just throw it up on the screen. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I myself will search and find my sheep. I myself will search and find my sheep. Those of you who know Christ here, we can have the testimony of some friend that told us about Jesus. We might have the testimony about some um, Bible teacher or pastor and evangelist to share the gospel, and um, we responded in faith. In other words, it might, be a, it might be a variety of individuals that talk to us about Jesus, but make no mistake about it. They were in your car. They were on your doorstep. They were in your living room. You were in the building of the church precisely because behind those individuals that made their mark on you spiritually, God was looking for you. And if you're here this morning and you are not a follower of Jesus, you're here in part because God is looking for you. He's on the hunt for you because you matter to him. You have value to him. And because whether you know it or not, you have a fundamental and massive need that only he can meet. Now, what is it that follows a successful search? I, I, I put the end of the first parable together with this parable because I want us to see the reinforcement of how much joy Jesus says his father has over uh, the, those who are found. Verse 7. In the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. More joy in heaven. In other words, this this kind of standard uh, perception that we have that God is only pleased with us when we're on the straight and narrow seems to go out the window here. That there's such a thrill and such a rejoicing over one person who's been rebellious and then, and then says yes and repents. There's a, there's a thrill in heaven. There's a party gets thrown there. Verse 10, same way after the woman who finds, <clears throat> finds her coin. In the same way there is joy in the presence of God's angels even when one sinner repents. And See if, you, see if you notice something here in verse 10. This was like a, this was a new thing that struck me as I was working on this message. I never caught before. When, when I thought about the party that Jesus was describing takes place in heaven, I thought it's uh, angels, okay? Angels are singing and they're having a high old time. But look at verse 10 again. In the same way, there is joy, notice the next phrase, in the presence of God's angels when one sinner repents. That, uh, your text, if it's more literal, it might simply say before the angels, in front of the angels. In other words, there's somebody else here 
who is delighting in your repentance. I wonder who that is. Is it the 24 elders? Is it the four living creatures in heaven? Maybe. But every now and then I remind you of something that scholars call in the Bible the divine passive. When some action is spoken about, but no, it, we don't know who. Someone did something, passive voice. Well, who did it? The divine passive. I think who he's referring to here is his heavenly father. In other words, God's not aloof in heaven. The angels are having all the fun. But it is God himself who's leading the orchestra, the band, the choir, and directing the party to celebrate that one sinner, maybe you, has come home. If you're here this morning and not a follower of Jesus, hear me again. Jesus is out looking for you. He loves you. It's the reason he was willing to come at his father's command, come to this earth and die for you. And his father is in heaven with an upraised baton. The band is all tuned up over here. The choir is ready to go. They have streamers strung across heaven in your favorite color. And I don't know, maybe there's even cake. And all that we are waiting for, all that heaven is waiting for, is for you to say no to yourself and yes to God. For you to turn from your sin and turn to Jesus Christ in faith. Because the forgiveness of your sins does not take your own effort, your own betterment. It takes the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And that blood can wash away each and every sin that you've ever committed and all the ones you will yet commit before you leave this life. But the invitation from heaven is out. They are waiting to throw a party for you because your God loves you far more than you could ever, ever possibly imagine. The closest we can get is a glance at the cross. Now, we, I don't typically give invitations in Keystone, and I don't plan to this morning in the classic sense, the last 150 years since where you come to the front, because there's no magic here at the front. The magic is in Jesus Christ. The hope is in Jesus Christ. But I am giving you an invitation in the sense of, if God is speaking to you today about that distance that remains between him because you're lost, he's not, but you are. The invitation is from him for you to come to Jesus. You can simply do that quietly in your own words, in your own way, but you can also tap somebody next to you and say, I I think I need to take this step. I want to be found. Would you pray with me? Or maybe with your parent later this afternoon or with a friend, but don't let this call from the shepherd come to you and ignore it. The cost is too high. 
and the prospect of joy and hope too great. Don't miss the invitation. Father, thank you for uh, the hope that we have in Jesus. Thank you for sending Jesus as uh, your ambassador, as a shepherd to come looking for us, as a um, a woman to come looking for us uh, like a precious coin, as a dad to come looking for us. In a human sense, we have nothing to bring to the table. We have nothing that will be compelling for you to say, oh, yeah, that's, that's worthy of my attention. What we have to bring to the table is our own repentance, our own brokenness, casting every ounce of our hope solely on you in Christ. And for those of us who know Christ, we just want to say thank you all over again for the party that was one day thrown on our behalf, for the delight that you have in us, not because of what we do or don't do, but because of whose we are. We love you. Thanks for loving us.